listening to the Plugged In Podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. And I'm Paige Lambermont, a policy associate at the Institute for Energy Research. Joining us today to discuss his new report on New York's blocked pipelines is Robert Bryce. Robert is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, where he's been writing about the energy sector for more than two decades. And his articles have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, The Atlantic, and the Sydney Morning Herald. He's the author of several books, including most recently, Smaller, Faster, Lighter, Denser, Cheaper, How Innovation Keeps Proving the Catastrophist Wrong. Robert, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Sure, happy to be with you. Yeah, so we're talking about your new report released through the Manhattan Institute back in June, um, where you discuss uh, issues with block pipelines in uh, New York and how it's impacting customers in the Northeast. Can you start by just describing the current issues surrounding natural gas pipelines in New York? Who's responsible for constraining the construction of new pipelines, and what impact uh, is this having on energy consumers there? So over the past uh, about three years or so, three to four years, the Cuomo administration and the New York Department of Environmental uh, uh, Conservation in New York have repeatedly blocked construction of new gas pipelines. Um, And uh, the the combined capacity of those three pipelines is about 1.5 billion cubic feet per day. So the result is that the state of New York, which is increasingly dependent on natural gas, as well as uh, customers in the Northeast, in, in New England, rather, um, are all facing shortages. So that there is, at a time, the, 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 the remarkable thing is that at the time when the United States is now exporting liquefied natural gas to countries all over the world, from Chile to China to Kuwait to the United Arab Emirates, you can't get enough natural gas into Yonkers. So the, the, the three pipelines that are now being blocked, the Constitution Pipeline, Northern Access, and the Northeast Supply Enhancement Project, because those projects are blocked, National Grid and Con Ed, two big utilities in the New York area, have a moratorium on new natural gas connections for new customers in their service territories. And further, the, 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 there are a number of, of communities in the rest of the New York and in Massachusetts now, 40, at least 40 of them, who are also facing uh, moratoriums on, on new gas hookups. So the knock-on effects of this, what is really an artificial shortage of natural gas in the Northeast, are, are remarkable. And uh, uh, I mean, even more remarkable given the success of the shale revolution. How will the reactor closures that are scheduled at the Indian Point uh, nuclear facility um, for 2020 and 2021 impact that demand for natural gas that we're already seeing in New York and the Northeast? Well, as always, almost always happens when nuclear reactors are closed in the United States, they will be replaced by gas-fired generation. And the New York Independent System Operator has already made this clear that when the when Indian Point Units 2 and 3 close, that, that output will largely be replaced by three natural gas-fired generation units that have, uh, that have been built or upgraded in the, in to, in the region. So uh, the, the remarkable thing, if you look at this kind of back up, you know, uh, uh, pull back and say, well, what's the punchline here? Well, it's that Governor Cuomo, who has said he's the climate, you know, the climate governor and pushing all these big climate policies, he pushed for the closure of Indian Point. But by closing Indian Point, he's not only closed 
the most important single generation point, uh, uh, source of, of electricity for the city of New York, he will also, and thereby, be replacing that reactor, those reactors with gas-fired generation, increase CO2 emissions in New York City and New York State. So it's it's one of the, the, the I mean, fundamentally crazy developments, but it's, uh, you know, this anti-nuclear, all-renewable outlook, um, oh, and we'll we're going to block natural gas too. Well, I mean, the knock-on effects here are going to are going to matter, and um, they haven't been felt yet, but they will be. So, if that generation is going to be replaced by um, the natural gas power plants, how will that reflect in the energy market? Will it be a sort of a shortages issue, or an increased prices issue, or a combination? Um, like, how will consumers feel that change? Yes, I think it's gonna, it's it's going to be both. Um, Customers in New York and, and New England are already paying some of the highest natural gas and electricity prices in the country. And now with these artificial scarcity, with this artificial scarcity that's happening, those rates only have one direction to go. And Con Ed has already announced it uh, will be seeking new uh, uh, price increases for its customers um, at, the, at the Public Utility Commission. But it's not – remember, these, these shortages of natural gas don't necessarily mean – immediate shortages of electricity because ISO New England, the grid operator in the New England states, has pointed out that when natural gas is scarce, and particularly in winter during uh, times of, of high natural gas demand, what are electricity generators in the, in the region doing? They're burning fuel oil. So not, not only are the emissions going up because of the lack of natural gas, they're using fuel oil, which um, about 30 produce about 30 percent more uh, CO2 per unit of energy than uh, per unit of electrical output than natural gas, but it's much more expensive. And a lot of one of the other points that the ISO New England has made in the past is that much of that fuel oil that's being used is actually imported. So uh, the again, the one of the the, the perversity uh, perverse outcomes here is that. The time when the U.S. Is, have, is enjoying enormous benefits from domestic oil and gas, the, the Northeast and New, New York are effectively making themselves into energy islands. Yeah, in your in your paper, you have a pretty lengthy discussion about how the war against pipelines isn't just unique to the Northeast; that it's sort of spreading across the country. Um, can you talk about a few of the other projects that you mentioned in the paper that are being delayed and? Um, how big of a, of a problem is it that just in general, it seems like there are people who are embracing it in any development culture, um, especially as it surrounds uh, energy? Sure. Well, I, I think the obvious ones are Keystone XL and and Dakota Access. Um, that and 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 also the, the the Roxbury Lateral, the West Roxbury Lateral in Boston in 2016, which was a gas pipeline. But but you look at Dakota Access and Keystone XL, the protests against those projects were covered by national media, um, and the, the climate activists were identifying those pipelines as, well, this is the essential pipeline, and, and, and identifying it, those projects as the linchpins, as the straws that will break the proverbial climate camel back. I can really mix up my metaphors here, but it's good tactics. I mean, if you stand back and say, well, why are they doing it? Well, 
<clears throat> from a pure political tactic standpoint, it makes sense, right? You identify one project. No, this is the forget state grid corporation and all the coal that they're burning and try to forget that Jap Japan is planning to build, you know, d d dozens of gigawatts of new coal fired capacity. No, this project right here, this pipeline is the one that we have to fight because this one is the one that is going to be the essential one for climate change. So, it is a national strategy that's being employed by national environmental groups who are then able to rally local environmental groups to their side and say, hey, you know, step up with us and we're going to fight this project and we're going to make this one the focus of climate change. And this is your neighborhood, your people. And that's what they've done nationally. It's what they've been doing in the Northeast. Can you talk some about how Section 401 of the Clean Water Act is used to help with those sort of methods of uh, blocking pipelines and also uh, how people have attempted to amend it um, recently. Section 401 is what uh, is is a, is a section of the of the Clean Water Act that uh, is federal law and it provides the states the ability to look at some of these interstate projects and and then bless them with what they call certification that the states agree that the project won't have significant impacts on water quality. Well. But this is the vehicle, <clears throat> excuse me, that the Cuomo administration has used in New York to repeatedly block these projects. They have delayed, they, and, and the, the Clean Water Act says that they have a year. The states have a year to decide up or down on these projects. Well, the Cuomo administration has gone, you know, 364 and a half days and then gone back to the project developers. Oh, your project, your application is incomplete. You have to resubmit. And then start, and that starts another one-year process. So, this that 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 process of delay and New York is one of Oregon has used Section 401 as well. Uh, I believe the state of Washington, off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure that was one of them. And they have also used Section 401, but uh, the state of New York is the one that has really been abusing uh, the the process. And a few months ago, uh, the uh, uh, <clears throat> the Trump administration ordered the EPA to issue new rules, tightening uh, uh, and, and guidance, tightening uh, the, the the rules around Section 401. But that that those that rule is going to be uh, contested in court. The states don't want to give up that power. And you know, I'm a federalist. I think that the states should have um, some say here. And it's but it's a very difficult balance. Um, between the states and the feds. And Congress isn't going to just go and amend Section 401, which is really if this is going to be resolved, that's what has to happen. But there's no payoff for Congress to do it. So the punchline here, and I'm giving you a really long answer, is that Section 401, the, the, these, these, uh, these updated guidance, updated guidance that the Trump administration has been pushing, it's going to be litigated. And so I really don't see any, any quick resolution to any of this. As that goes to the courts, it's there's no chance of it sort of um, being figured out in Congress because of like the political strife there. Like with that, is there a way for the courts even to ameliorate this while respecting uh, states' rights and also um, ensuring pipeline construction can happen? Sort of how how do you think that'll play out? Well, again, I I don't have a crystal ball here, and just a few weeks ago, the FERC. Uh, sided with the project developers on Constitution Pipeline and said that the state had abused Section 401. Now, this is the FERC, um, which is one of the other key players in all of this uh, this fight. Uh, but it's, it appears that 
Williams, the company that's developing Constitution, will then have to get a court injunction against the state of New York to prevent them from abusing Section 401 again. So the, the, the pipeline developers are in a tricky position here because they'll have to do business in New York. And if they try and if they're too aggressive with the regulators in New York, they can hurt their own prospects. So it's a very delicate um, situation for the pipeline operators and the pipeline developers. But the punchline here is that by locking out natural gas, and this is one of the key points in my paper, is that by locking out natural gas, the Cuomo administration is locking in fuel oil. And so what is that? They're locking in consumers to higher prices and they're locking higher emissions uh, from greenhouse gases because of the heavy on oil rather than natural gas. So uh, again, if we just step back and say, well, who loses here? I think it's obviously the consumer and the consumer is losing out because of this political posturing. Yeah, and last winter we saw this sort of play out with the uh, the polar vortex um, when temperatures dropped very low last winter, saw energy prices spike in the Northeast, and we were, I believe we were importing natural gas from Russia. There were a whole bunch of just sort of odd things that fell out of that that otherwise wouldn't be the case. As we start to make the transition into winter here going forward is What's the concern, I guess, going into uh, into the winter with energy uh, in the Northeast then? Well, the, the grid operator in, in New England, ISO New England, has repeatedly said and, and repeated reports saying we fear uh, that if there isn't enough natural gas, we're going to have rolling, uh, we're going to have brownouts and blackouts. Um, and you're right. Uh, one of the things that is truly remarkable is that the uh, uh, customers in the Northeast have, in, in, at, on occasion, had to rely on liquefied natural gas imported from overseas, including, most memorably, uh, a load of LNG that came from Russia. So, at the very same time that Pennsylvania, where the heart of the, the heart of the Marcellus Shale, is producing now something on the order of 18 billion cubic feet per day, to put that in perspective, Pennsylvania is producing as much natural gas as Canada. Pennsylvania is producing as much natural gas every day as Canada, and yet you can't get that gas into New York. You can't get it to Boston. You can't get it into New Hampshire or any of those other states in the Northeast because of these pipeline blocks. So it's, um, you know, again, who loses? It's the consumer. What's the interplay between um, New York's ban on fracking and its uh, blocking of pipeline construction? Well, I think it's of a piece um, in terms of political philosophy, which is, oh, we don't need this. Um, you know, we don't <laughs> like Elizabeth Warren saying she's going to ban hydraulic fracturing nationwide, which she gets sworn into office. It's this it's part of this anti hydrocarbon mentality that is very strong among the political class, particularly among uh, uh, Democrats and, and far left um, uh, uh, liberals that oh, we don't need hydrocarbons in particular. Oh, we don't need natural gas. Well, you have to have something. How are you going to heat your homes? How are you going to you know, fuel your factories? What, what about uh, uh, electricity generation? And what I see as a general trend in the United States is that we're seeing the gas grid and the electric grid merge, that we're seeing this con, uh, con, confluence of natural gas and electricity, and so that we're more and more reliant on a single fuel. Now, I'm pro-natural gas, but I'm also worried that we're seeing uh, well, we're going to have too much reliance on a single fuel. And unlike coal and unlike uranium, 
natural gas is a just-in-time fuel. You deliver it right when it's needed. There's very little storage in, in the natural gas system that can be deployed at scale. And so in some ways, you know, it makes the system more fragile. The, and I'm not talking about the electric grid. makes them more, more fragile because of its dependence on a single fuel and the just-in-time uh, delivery element. Uh, so a lot of people in uh, New York and in New England talk about wind and solar as possible replacements for the natural gas capacity that they're attempting to block. Could you talk um, talk to us some about sort of attempts to construct wind and solar in New England and also um, like sort of delivery problems that have occurred um, with that? Sure. Well, look no further than Vermont, Bernie Sanders' home state. I mean, again, this is one of the great disconnects in, in the, the energy policy that's talked about and being promulgated. Bernie Sanders, is, his Green New Deal, oh, we're going to run the entire on renewables. You cannot build, you cannot build new wind capacity in Vermont today. It's impossible. The, the local opposition to wind projects in the state of Vermont makes it un, 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 unfeasible. Well, so if you can't build them in Vermont, where are you going to put them? It's part and parcel of this what I call the vacant land myth, that uh, it's uh, this idea that uh, you know, these the people who are pushing these 100% renewable programs, oh, well, there's just a lot of land out there somewhere in flyover country. We're just going to put a bunch of wind turbines and solar panels out there, and we're going to put a bunch of transmission lines out there, and we're going to bring all that electricity back to my house, and I don't have to see it, and I don't have to think about it. The reality is just the opposite that all across the country, but particularly in New York and, and New England, the opposition to large-scale renewable projects is enormous and it is growing. Um, look at the Lighthouse Wind Project in New York, 200 megawatts that were slated to be built on the southern shore of Lake Ontario. That project was opposed by three counties. It was opposed by two towns, Yates and Somerset. That project was quietly delayed or withdrawn earlier this year that project was never, not one word of that project was ever written about in the New York Times. It was as though it didn't appear, it didn't, you know, the opposition didn't exist, that, oh, this was just, you know, and, and again, here's the Times pushing these all-renewable kind of, you know, the silliness, but they will not cover it. They will send reporters to India to talk about the coal business. They couldn't bother to be sending them to Orleans or Erie counties. Is there anything that we haven't covered here that you think is important for our listeners to know? Well, I, I think the one thing that to me is just that uh, the well, two things. One is, you know, this idea that, oh, we have alternatives. And we've kind of talked about that a little bit, the idea that we're going to replace it with renewables. Well, uh, you know, the, 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 the problem with renewables is that during extreme weather, they don't work. And a friend of mine pointed this out recently was, that, that nuclear plants, well, in the summertime, yeah, they can have problems with cooling if the water, their intake water is too hot and so on. But they are built to be durable during extreme weather events. Wind and solar, um, I remember I was talking to a utility executive in New Jersey a while back. During, they had a, you know, during one of the, the cold snaps in, uh, I think it was the, the, the bomb cyclone, they had, they had workers out with brooms dusting off solar panels in on some winter days because they were so desperate to get any kind of generation onto the grid. Well, wind and solar can't be counted on during the hottest times and they can't be counted on during the coldest times. So you have to have something else to back them up. And so this is where, you know, another example of where the 
you know, this all renewable push is is really falling apart because it doesn't in, take into account the need to provide electricity and fuel for heating um, during uh, times of extreme extreme weather. Yeah, Paige and I were actually just talking about that when we sat down here. We're, uh, I'm from Michigan and she's from Pennsylvania, and we know that you know once uh, the fall comes uh, up in the Midwest, you can't really count on seeing the sun too much uh, until the uh, the spring and as you pointed out, with the snow and everything, is just completely unrealistic. So, um, before well, we go, I mean, though, and we and and we know how well batteries work when it's really cold too. Right. So, you know, the idea we're gonna oh, we'll put in some batteries and we'll store it for weeks at a time. Well, what happens to those batteries when it's sub-zero weather? Well, they don't work very well. Batteries are they're like Goldilocks. Don't like it too hot. Don't like it too cold. Don't want to be charged too fast. Don't want to be discharged too fast. You know, the, the all of these so-called solutions that that um, would allow a 100% renewable grid. They're, they're they're all based on 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 myths. Are there any other projects that you're working on? I know uh, the Manhattan Institute has some exciting new things that you guys are working on in on energy. Is there anything that you think our listeners might be interested in? Well, sure. Um, <clears throat> how much time do we have? I can talk all about it. Um, I have a new documentary and I have a new book. Uh, the documentary is called Juice: How Electricity Explains the World. Um, went to uh, uh, Puerto Rico, Lebanon, Iceland, India. New York, Colorado, looking at the world through the lens of electricity and why this form of energy is the, is the most important and fastest growing form of energy globally. So I'm excited about that project. It'll, uh, the documentary should be out later this year. My new book is called A Question of Power, Electricity and the Wealth of Nations. It's my sixth book, republished by Public Affairs on March 17th of next year. Uh, I wrote the book uh, simultaneously as I produced the film. Uh, I'm really proud of both of them. The the book goes into more detail about the how the, the electric grid in the United States evolved. I look at the past, present, and future of electricity, um, and in particular look at where uh, the electricity uh, where electricity demand is growing the fastest in the United States, and that happens to be in the the, the cannabis business and in the in, in the data business. So, who are the where are the areas that electricity is growing the most? Well, it's places like Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, uh, etc., and it's in uh, the, the the grow houses outside of uh, or in, inside the city of Denver and in other uh, grow houses across the country where companies are growing pot. So. Um, I'm really proud of the book, um, and I'm really excited to to get it published. Yeah, both of those things sound great. We'll have to have you on again to uh, to discuss both both of those projects. Yeah, I'd be uh, be happy to do it. And uh, uh, as I said, I'm, I'm I'm excited about both of them. And uh, it's my first film. Um, that you know, it's not easy, to death, but I'm really proud of it. Uh, my colleague Tyson Culver is the director. He did a great job. Uh, my my favorite footage in the whole film is when we we filmed. Uh, a blackout in, in San Juan, Puerto Rico, uh, from a drone. And so uh, a lot of things that were really exciting in that project, and I'm really eager to, to get it out in the market. Yeah, we'll make sure to uh, include links to both of those um, things in the show notes of this episode. So our guest sure. today has been Robert Bryce from the Manhattan Institute. Robert, thank you again for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks a million.